We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna... Well, I just think that if you don't use it, it's it's a uh, it's a mistake because I know how difficult it is to defend against a running quarterback. Ice, Bills, two possessions, two punts. Taylor picks up a first down and more. Tyrod Taylor still going. Finally, first down of bounds at the Cardinals' 29-yard line as Taylor picks up 49, a 31-yard attempt. Chasing after the ball, but still loose, and then picked up by Aaron Williams. And Williams will take it all the way. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report. I'm Drew Gear, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder and your host. That's Chris Krueger, my producer. And that was Rex Ryan from BuffaloBills.com and Kenny Elbert from Fox Sports touching on some of the biggest plays of last week's game and discussing the value of a mobile quarterback. Tyrod set the record for the longest run by a quarterback in franchise history last week. It's the first game that Tyrod's gotten out of the pocket and been able to make plays with his legs. And as you can see, he's a game changer when he does it. Oh, that option play that he hit for 49? Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Turner put that out on um, CoverOne.net, and he watched the linebacker just bite so hard on that. It's incredible, and as he stated, you're you're stupid if you have a weapon and you don't use it. Now, guys, we have a packed show tonight, so I'm going to dive right into this with the Buffalo Bills news update. The week started off with an odd piece of news. As it was announced that Tom Coughlin was visiting the brass over at One Bills Drive this week. Now, before everyone just gets carried away with speculation that he was being interviewed as a head coaching candidate here or for the position of president of football operations, let's take a step back and talk about what we know about the situation. First off, Tom Coughlin was fired as the head coach of the Giant during the offseason. He was only considered as an outlier for the Philly head coaching job, which he eventually withdrew his name from because he knew he wasn't good enough to obtain it. 
Then, because nothing else, no other job on the horizon materialized for him, he took a job with the NFL front offices in New York City. Given this new job, it's likely that there's going to be a need for him to travel and meet with teams around the NFL. It's a given. I, I mean, I don't know the specifics of his job, but considering he just has this ambiguous title, I don't know what it is that he's actually doing out there. And then, finally, the Pagulas are said to not even have been in town during the time of his visit. Now, that would seem to throw some cold water on this idea that they want to hire him in any capacity if they're not actually here to meet with him. I will admit that it is curious that Tom Coughlin's hanging around One Bill's Drive. And yes, it's something that is worth keeping an eye on, I guess. But it's also possible that they were just looking to pick his brain, given his NFL experience. But continuing to sit around and speculate on the on the fact that you know we could possibly be hiring you know Coughlin or anyone out there who's saying that they've heard this or that Coughlin wants you know the Bills want Coughlin for this job, you're just trying to read the tea leaves floating around in your Labatt Blue. Okay, you don't know anything. Nobody knows anything. If anybody knew anything, it would be ma- it would be news. It would the, be sourced news. The only person that says that they did meet was uh, the guy from Rochester Chronicle or whatever that newspaper is. Sal. 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 Mor- Mariana. Mariana. I don't know. I, he, I he's saw the it. only one that <clears throat> says it's confirmed that he met with that Coughlin met with Bill's Brass. Okay. But but, I don't know who his sources are. Okay, so then at that point, unless I, I don't know, it's all hearsay to me until something actually materializes. And then, in his post-game press conference this week, Rex Ryan made an interesting announcement. Now, oftentimes last season, the defensive plays would be discussed and called by committee. You know, between Rex, Dennis Thurman, you know, whoever, you know, the players. Virgil. Which is part of the reason that... I think we had so much problem, so so much problem, so many problems getting our defense on the same page last season. That Houston game where Preston Brown comp- openly complained that the calls were coming in late. I think it was because there was too much discussion going on on the sideline as far as what the call should be. So it was surprising to hear that in Sunday's victory, Rex said that he turned over all of the defensive play calling duties to. Dennis Thurman and his brother, Rob Ryan. Wouldn't you do that anyway as a head coach? You delegate play calling to your offensive coordinator and on the defensive side of the ball to your defensive coordinator so you can just focus on managing the team and the game. Well, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that Rex Ryan to this point in his career has struggled with is not micromanaging. But you know, he added that it was a true committee approach between, you know, between Rob and Dennis, but that's the first time they've, he's done anything like that in his career because he's always been very hands-on with the defense. You know, Dennis Thurman called the plays between the 20s. Rob Ryan called the red zone defense. And he cited the fact that his brother has done more research on the Cardinals than anybody else in the building given his time in the NFC. Now, I think from what I could see, our defensive communication was better, and the results make me think that maybe this new division of labor you know, with Rex kind of extricating himself from the process, might actually streamline the, the play calling. I think that could work. I'd like to see it this week. Well, and that's it's been announced that Thurman and Rob will go into next week working together again to call our defense without Ryan being, you know, in the loop. And Do I you, think that, well, it doesn't guarantee a performance like just the complete ass-kicking we gave Arizona this week, 
the early returns on this gamble by Rex look promising. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I wonder for, you know, we'll probably touch on it later when we have Christian Simonelli on, guest host of BFW in Progress. You know, they haven't announced their quarterback. So, you know, how do you go about game planning a defense when you could have three potential quarterbacks, whether it's Brissett, Garoppolo, or Edelman? Well, I think that I think that that has a lot to do with this decision. And so that brings us to, speaking of the Cardinals game, our week three recap, Buffalo Bills, Arizona. Now, we, anyone who watched that game, we led from start to finish. And in rewatching the game, I don't understand. I guess I, <laughs> I don't understand why I was so nervous in the stands watching that game. But that's because I'm a Bills fan. I've had it ingrained into me that we are capable of imminent collapse. We are capable of this epic failure at any given time. Whenever you get your hopes up too high, the Bills will be there to just kick the chair from underneath you. I always forget of at when I, you predict something like that, because we both said Arizona was going to win. I think it's forgetful for us to that West Coast to East Coast definitely plays a factor. Oh, it does. That's what the West Coast teams always struggle out here in the East, and vice versa. East Coast teams struggle to go to the West Coast. So... But looking back at it and re-watching the game, I don't know why I was so worried because after watching it, and even in the stands, I was on the edge of my seat. I was you know, standing up. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't sit still. And after re-watching it, I don't know what I was thinking because that game, we comfortably led that game from start to finish. Now, that's not to say it was perfect, and I'm here to kind of walk you through all of my, this was my, these were my takeaways from the game. First off, middle of the field passing. I hate to be a Debbie Downer and start on a low note. But this week, we got three yards of passing on two attempts to the middle of the field. Taylor completely failed to utilize that area of the field in the passing game. We've said it all offseason. Oh, it's becoming the story of his career. This week in an interview with WGR 550, Rex Ryan tried to downplay the significance of it. However, his lack of success in this area, it's, it's a disturbing trend for a guy who, I mean, he wants to be the long-term quarterback here, right? Yeah. He, or at least, if he's not the long-term quarterback here, earn a, a big paycheck with some other team. Yeah, and you read the some comments in the Buffalo Bills Fanatics group on Facebook where some fans are, are just complaining that Doug Whaley sucks because we wasted all <laughs> of this money on Charles Clay. Charles Clay's not getting the ball because he's a tight end, and you want to catch a tight end on a seam route, and Taylor's not going to look in the middle of the field. That's why he's not getting catches. No. And it's something that Taylor desperately needs to fix if he's going to see an extension to his contract. Next in the docket is fumbleitis. Oh, no! We suck again! The Bills were extremely lucky on Sunday as they fumbled the ball three times but recovered each and every one of them. I mean, there was one fumble in particular that absolutely should have been recovered by the Arizona defense. But Tyron Matthew was in such a hurry to scoop that ball and score that he couldn't get his hands on the ball and ended up kicking it right out of bounds. <laughs> Just watching his body language on the sideline, you could tell that the guy felt like he was in one of those Southwest Airline commercials where they come in and ask if you want to get away. I bet you in that moment he wanted to be anywhere but Orchard Park, New York, right then and there. What did we do on that drive? Did we score? Did we get any kind of points? I believe we did. I believe we went on to score in that drive. So then... 
that brings us to some of the, <laughs> I'm sorry, to, like I said, I'm sorry to open up as a Debbie Downer. But next up is this exciting new defensive sub package that we saw. Now, this was a facet of the game that I have a complete heart on for. I mean, I'm an X's and O's guy. I like the analytics of football. I like seeing the science that goes into game planning and positional play. You know, where you put your safeties, how you deploy your roster. Well, this just got my engine revving. Because kind of like what Bill Belichick did to the Bills as the Giants' defensive coordinator in that first Super Bowl. Rex Ryan switched things up and went to a defensive alignment that Carson Palmer wasn't prepared for. It, it was seven defensive backs on the field, including four safeties, three linebackers, and one down lineman, which and, was generally Kyle Williams. Yeah, Kyle Williams. So Kyle Williams is one of the more, without Marcel Darius, he's probably the most disruptive defensive lineman we have. When that unit was on the field, Kyle Williams was getting penetration because the offensive line didn't know who to block. It was confusing. You know, it, and then you could see the effect it had on their passing game. You know, it started out early in the game. We started running it on third downs. But by the second half, when we had a comfortable lead, they were rolling with it on second and third downs, sometimes throwing it out there on first if they knew they were going to try to pass. It was incredible. And the package itself worked. I mean, you saw it. Here's a team that has explosive receivers, has a good veteran quarterback, and yet they weren't able to throw the ball with any kind of efficiency on this Bills defense. I mean, we the team gave up 100 yards rushing because it's hard to defend the run with that type of a package. But ultimately, their passing attack was kept at bay, and we forced a, a whole slew of turnovers using that package late in the game. Last four drives, Palmer intercepted four times. I mean, this is what Rex Ryan had to say on the development and its implementation in his post-game press conference. You know, but it was it was a joint effort, great team effort. Guys came up with certain things and they did a great job. Won't get into the specifics, but uh, you know, it was it was just a great job by the staff. And I think that one we went with a four safety look, trying to mess their count up a little bit. And uh, they wanted to go ahead and go to empty, so that was good for us. Um, we wanted them in that situation. Well, that audio comes to you from buffalobills.com. But for, for those of you who don't know, Rex Ryan's mentioned, he's talking about they went to empty. What he was seeing is that when they were trying to pass their way back into the football game, they were going to four wide, five wide sets, you know, not having a running back. Well, with the number of safeties we were flooding the field with, it makes it hard to identify the middle linebacker. It makes it hard to figure out where the blitz is going to come from, where your pressure is going to be, which guy's playing man, which guy's playing zone. It all gets foggy when you flood the field with defensive backs like that. And so it really confused Carson Palmer and forced him into making a lot of mistakes that are uncharacteristic of the way that guy plays. Ultimately, that, I really do believe that that sub-package might have been one of the keys to the game for us. So the next thing was generating pressure. Kind of like how the last position you know, I was talking about, the sub-package confusing the quarterback. One of the things that doomed us in our first two games was just our inability to get consistent pressure. This new defense froze Palmer in the pocket. Okay, It made it hard for him to recognize all the different moving pieces of our defense. And, be, and that combined with an aggressive blitz scheme, our defense just ate him alive. I mean, Jerry Hughes spent a lot of the day match, matched up against Cardinals right tackle DJ Humphreys. And he was absolutely unblockable. He had a sack, and I think he finished the day with like four or five pressures. 
I mean, it was incredible. Even they were throwing running backs. They were throwing tight ends at him. They just couldn't slow Jerry Hughes down on that side of the defense. Yeah, there were other guys that, you know, made an impact. One of the guys, one, there was one play in particular, and I don't think there was a sack on it, but Lorenzo Alexander just straight up bull rushed one of Arizona's guards and basically pushed him over and forced the throw out of, out of Palmer. I don't think it was a sack, but I'm, I was sitting on the couch watching, and I couldn't believe that a special teamer could do that. Well, but that's the thing. These guys, what it is is that they're all feeding off of Jerry Hughes. When Jerry Hughes gets successful, the offensive line tries to overcompensate, and they slide everyone over to Jerry Hughes' side. That gives everyone else on our defensive line, whether it's Jarrell Worthy, whether it's uh, – What's his Adolphus Washington, Kyle Williams, Lorenzo Alexander, even Laurenti McRae got half a sack. Everyone out there is going, who? Laurenti McRae. We picked him up. What did we trade for him? In the uh, Green, yeah, we traded a seventh round pick for Green Bay for that guy. He's a special teamer and a role of filling. I think it was like week, th- week three of the preseason. Yeah, on pass rushing downs, he's in there, but otherwise, he's just a special teamer. But even then, Laurenti McRae got half a sack. That tells you everything you need to know. Our defense fed off Jerry Hughes doing his job at a high level, and everyone else was able to succeed in their one-on-one matchups. That is what we need to see more of, because that's going to be the key to us winning football games. Then rushing up the gut and to the right. Now, this is where my statistical analysis of things come in. What was thought of as an area of weakness coming into the season You know, the right side of the line, the guard position, people were down on Jonathan Mills. They were down on uh, John Miller. People, you know, Eric Wood kind of had a down year last year. That was the strength of our running game on Sunday. In total, between running backs and quarterbacks, on runs up the middle, off of right guard, and off of right tackle, they accounted for 19 attempts, 128 yards, and two of our touchdowns. I think the guy I was most impressed with was John Miller, you know, our, our last year's third-round pick at guard. He seems like he's finally finding his footing as a run blocker in the NFL and getting consistent. You know, he's consistent in his run blocking. He, he rarely misses an assignment. He's, fi- he's starting to get good at climbing the ladder and getting to that second level, which is huge when you've got a running back like Shady. Because if you see Richie Incognito do it from time to time. If they can get to the second level and provide, you know, hit the linebackers and keep them off of LaShawn McCoy, huge plays. Huge plays are what McCoy is capable of. And so I give a lot of praise and a lot, I think a huge part of our win on Sunday belongs to that center and right side of our line, which is where we thought we were the weakest coming into the season. I saw uh, Incognito uh, on some polling plays absolutely just pancake people. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful thing to see. Oh, absolutely. Finally seeing that the kid grasps it. And now he's going to go out there. and Because now that he gets it, he can see fast, he can play fast, and he can play hard. It's going to be really interesting to see if he continues his progression. Because if he does, I think we have a really good right guard in our hands. And so that brings us to our hero and zero of the game. Now, our hero of the game, I, I had an argument here, but I had to give it to Stefan Gilmore. Because they're winners. Winners get to do what they want. Gilmore's 2016 season has been less than stellar, to say the least. So it was good to see him come back in a game that saw, you know, Ron Darby was out with injury. 
you had a lot of different people missing from our defensive alignment that we would have liked to have there and play like a truly elite cornerback. You cannot ask for a better comeback game off of that shit we saw against the Jets. Oh, the Jets. That might have been the worst game of his career Yeah, against the Jets. So he finished this game with a pair of interceptions late in the fourth quarter while the Cardinals were doing everything they could to try to mount a comeback. A pair of tackles, four passes defended. I mean, he led the team in it. And just his coverage was outstanding. Yeah, especially with Darby out, knowing that he's he is like the true number one for the game. And to come out with that performance and seal the game with two late picks... I think one of them was a red. One of them was a red zone. He caught it at the goal line. Oh, it was incredible. He that that pick at the goal line, the one that saved the touchdown. It was incredible. We saw it from the stands, and some lady behind me that I don't even know just hugged me with two hands around the neck. I thought she was going to choke me to death. The stands were crazy, guys. If if anyone else out there listening was at the game, you know what I'm talking about. Our section was insane. Section two hundred. Section 200, row seven, come find me. I had some guy who, mind you, I was pretty amped up. I was trying to get the section on their feet. And when we scored that fumble return touchdown, I tried to two, like give some guy a double, like a double high five. That, that field goal was coming at you, right? No, it was going away from us. Well, I meant the field goal. Oh, yeah, the field goal was coming in our direction. So we got to watch the snap go over the kicker's head. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, this is going to happen. So I jumped up and I ran to the stairs. And I immediately high five this big guy who sits on the end of the row seven, end of row seven section. I don't think it's, it's not 201. I don't know what it is, but it's directly across from ours. And in that moment, I think we were both just so amped that we both went a little too hard. I high fived him and he high fived me back so hard that I fell down six of those seven flights of concrete stairs. Again. It was one of those moments that I'll never forget because I was so happy that I didn't care. Now I've got a tennis ball-sized bruise on my shoulder, another one on my elbow. I've got a Charlie horse. But in that moment, it was amazing. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Being there at the stadium. Now, this is the first time ever for this, but for our Hero of the Week, I have an honorable mention because this is the guy I almost gave it to. Almost. Corey Graham. I think Corey Graham played his best game in a Bills uniform on Sunday. He finished the day with three defended passes, two of which were on deep balls early in the game, in the first quarter, you know, to, to Brown and to Floyd, who are both very good deep ball wide receivers. You know, they, Carson Palmer was, okay, they're not going to give us anything short. Let's take shots to try to loosen up this defense. And Corey Graham was there both times that they tried to take us deep to swat the ball away, which was huge because then they didn't take many deep shots after that. I mean, I think that those catches on those 40 or 50-yard passes could have very easily turned the momentum of the entire game into Arizona's favor. So the fact that Corey Graham defended those passes, then he was also a force in the running game. He had four solo tackles. One of them was for a loss. He caught the guy right at the line and drove him backwards. Loss of a yard. And then he got a sack and an interception. He finished with a sack in the third quarter, an interception in the fourth quarter while they're trying to mount this comeback. Corey Graham played out of his mind this week, and it pained me not to be able to give him Hero of the Week. And then that brings us to our Zero of the Week, which, unfortunately, based on what I saw, and I understand if you don't like it, but I had to give it to Tyrod Taylor. You blew it! 
When you win like that, yes. When you win like that, yes, you don't you don't ever want to blame anybody. Because we won, right? A win is a win. But Tyrod gets this week's nod because for the third week in a row, he's been below average as a passer. And that is just, it's flat out not going to be good enough if this team is going to succeed this season. He posted a a passing total of less than 150 yards for the second time in three games. His completion percentage was less than 60%. He finished with 54. And he had a QBR of 60.2. That's not good. That's not good enough to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I mean, so far, he has not played like a guy who wants or deserves an extension. You know, he doesn't deserve. At this point, if you were to ask me, would you let him go right now or would you pay him the rest of this extension that they gave him? No, I would cut. I would, I'd cut bait. I would cut him. We're not going to win very many games the way that we won them Sunday. How many games? Wait, how many? Let me ask you this: How many games he started? He's sixteen, right? Because he missed 16. two. So he started sixteen games. Why don't you? Why don't you give me a list of teams where you can definitively say, "Oh, Tyrod Taylor got us that win." No, and that's and that's the Titans game. I'll give you the Titans game. Tyrod Taylor manned up and won us that game. You could one, argue, you one could, game. You could argue that his lack of ability as a passer also put us in a hole in the fourth quarter. But he brought us back and got us the W. But at the same time, I just haven't seen enough from him. I thought the money would motivate him. I thought the opportunity to know that, like, hey, at the end of the season, this could be it for me. It still didn't do anything. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can rebound from this. I mean, we're we're all desperately hoping that we can. And that brings us to this week's AFC East Roundup. Now this week, <laughs> every week we do the AFC's roundup. We try to give a kind of an eagle eye view of what's going on with other teams in the division. You know, obviously it's important. This week, in a statement of extreme mediocrity, the Dolphins needed overtime in order to beat the Cleveland Browns thirty to twenty-four. A W is a W, but there's a lot of things to hate there. Former first-round right tackle Juwan, Tam- Juwan James was benched. Mike Pouncey still doesn't seem ready to return to play. And their backup center, uh, Alex Steen, out of Alabama, roll tide, has already been ruled out of their matchup for this week. They're struggling to balance their attack between running and passing, and they're, as a team, only averaging 3.6 yards per carry. And yet, despite all of the money that got paid to their defensive line, I mean, you think about it, they've got Indomitian Sue, they've got Cameron Wake still out there, they've got Mario Williams, they're producing as pass rushers, and yet they've struggled at times during the first three games in stopping the run simply because their defensive linemen are, are more concerned with rushing the passer than stopping running backs, and their linebackers are not good. Well, let's not forget Cleveland's Cody Parkey missed three field goals, including uh, a potential game winner at the end of the game. It's so a, this is a, this this was a game that Miami should have lost. Oh, absolutely! And I'll tell you, the coaching staff hasn't you know the coaching staff isn't ignorant to this. According to Pro Football Talk's Darren Grant, Adam Gase has already been quoted. Now, mind you, it's week three, week three of his first NFL season. He's already been quoted as saying the following: "I'm over discussing any of this stuff with players. Whoever wants to do it right, those are the guys we'll put out there." Talent is irrelevant at this point. Wow. 
It's weird. I will chain you to a pipe and a crawl space. They've got questions. Don't have a lot of time to answer them. And their coach is losing his shit. I mean, he's already flipping out on the roster and benching high draft picks because of lack of effort or not, quote unquote, buying into the system. This looks like a problem. And they've got a lot of questions and they don't have a lot of time to answer them because they take on the Bengals in Cincinnati and try to get themselves to 500 tomorrow night. I mean, it's it's not going to get any easier for the Dolphins as this season goes on. And then, uh, <laughs> on a hilarious note, did anyone out there watch the Jets game? I got to stop you right there, Brohim. Um, this is not in your rundown. It's in my rundown. With the Jets, people want to know one thing, and I got to give a countdown, not safe for work, in five, four, three, two, one. How's it taste, motherfucker? Seagram's update. It's magical. <laughs> it's laughing at me. I wish I could brush my teeth with it. I want to put my dick in it. I want it to put its dick in me. I wish it were winter. We could make it into ice blocks and skate on it. Mm. And then melt it in the springtime and drink it. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. If you're not into yoga. Ryan Fitzpatrick, 20 of 44. 188 yards. He did not eclipse 375, which makes you eligible to drink a six-pack of Seagram's as per the bet last week. So for fans who don't know, last week after after Ryan Fitzpatrick absolutely dismantled the Buffalo Bills defense, I made a bet with our producer here that if Ryan Fitzpatrick can throw more than 374 yards at any point in time this season, I will drink a six-pack of Seagram's of his choice. The fact is, is it wasn't happening this week. I started the Chiefs defense in a in a fantasy football league that has favorable point structures for defense. They put up 39 points. They outscored my opponent's quarterback and propelled me to a come-from-behind victory. I'll tell you what, nothing felt better on Sunday. I thought the win alone was going to be my only, the Buffalo Bills victory was going to be my only win for the day. Oh no, oh no, there were far more delicious things waiting for me when I got home. I got home, I grabbed a beer, I said, you know what, I'm going to take it easy and I'm going to relax, I'm going to have a couple more pops, I'm going to watch some TV, and I got to sit back and watch Ryan Fitzpatrick, okay, he threw six interceptions, he completely blew his team's shot at a victory, he earned the lowest quarterback rating that Pro Football Focus has ever given out, since Pro Football Focus was a thing, the lowest quarterback rating they've ever given and two of his six interceptions were in the end zone. And that's just pathetic. Uh, let's not forget he threw five interceptions in five possessions, a Jets franchise record. He said after the game that he knows he needs to be better. Well, I'll tell you what, you're going to have a stiff challenge because the Seattle Seahawks are coming to town. Those guys are a stingy defense. They're turnover hungry. They're going to come into your house and they're licking their chops. They're waiting they're, they're waiting to get fed. I hope I hope Ryan Fitzpatrick has the answer. We can't get This is the same thing that we just went through on Sunday. Arizona came here. Seattle's going to New York. I I give the Jets a chance just for a West Coast team coming east on Sunday. I don't know. It's it's all going to come down to Fitzpatrick. Can Fitzpatrick do enough? to win his team a football game. He'll just do something that fits 
Fitz does. Right now, Fitz and Jets fans out there on Twitter, you see it out there, you know, you hear it in other podcasts, they are on the ledge right now because they just paid a quarterback $12 million whose interceptions have single-handedly lost them two of their three games to start the season. You know, uh, before the show, I was telling you about the thing I saw on Colin Cowherd, the stranger football things. Another thing that he had in there is that after this season, Cowboys know what they have in Dak Prescott. Romo is going to start to float elsewhere and that he's going to go to New York <laughs> and play for the Jets. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you're telling me they're going to bring in another quarterback who just loves to throw late game interceptions. Yeah. Awesome. Bring it on. Bring it yeah, on. That was, that was, that was Cowherd's prediction. And then to wrap up the AFC East roundup, we come to new England. And I mean, to hell with those guys. Seriously, I mean it. They started a third-round rookie draft choice and very casually shut out the Houston Texans. They dominated on the ground. They ran at will against what I assume to be a talented front seven with guys like Clowney, Watt, and Cushing, and their defense is playing like it might be one of the best in the league. And to help us expand on that, we have Christian Simonelli here with us tonight, folks. Christian, how are you doing tonight? I'm excellent, guys. How about you? <laughs> I'd be doing a lot better if you guys dropped that game on Thursday. <laughs> Not just the game on Thursday, but weeks one and two. Well, I, I cannot... don't even care about that because Jimmy Garoppolo was a decent quarterback. You're talking about Jacoby Brissett, a third-round rookie draft pick who's never seen a snap of real NFL action, and he came in and didn't cost them the game. You know, in, uh, in New England, Belichick always preaches fundamentals. And, uh, you know, basically... Um, you know, Brissett just stayed out of the way. I mean, he, he, you know, he may obviously had that, that great run that he had. And that was, you know, really one of the few plays that he made. It was pretty much a defensive game. To me, I was uh, beyond stunned as to how uh, inept Houston was. No. With all the knowledge and all the personnel that they have on that side mm. of the field, on that team, to basically just wet down their leg coming into Gillette Stadium oh, was the most surprising thing. It, it was incredible. Like I, I was telling you earlier before we started recording, I don't know who else besides me here in Buffalo was still up watching that game, but I watched it to its conclusion with a beer in my hand and just this dumb, just blank expression on my face. My girlfriend kept coming out and asking if I was okay. And I was just like, baby, just go to bed. Just go to bed. I just need to sit here and watch this to kind of wrap my head around what I'm seeing. Well, one of my, you know what? One of my favorite uh, shows to listen to is Fox Sports Radio's Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis. And he has this caller that calls in Gerald from Austin. And, oh, maybe it was two weeks ago, he said, Gerald from Austin goes, oh, Tom Brady's a system quarterback. And then you saw how Garoppolo handled Miami and how Brissett didn't, give the Texans the game. And he actually called in today to the show, and Clay Travis was like, dude, I think I, I might at some level have to agree with you that like this is just Belichick's system. You could just plug and play anybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's been getting a lot of, uh, you know, certainly a lot of press. And, you know, my answer to that is come and talk to me in November and December when these teams get two months of tape on you. Then we'll mm -hmm. see if they're really system quarterbacks because I think we all know 
whether you start out hot or you start out slow, when you get in, you know, around here, they always say it's the games after Thanksgiving when it really starts to amp up and you really start to get that feel of playoff football. Then you know what you have for a team. So if Jimmy G were to, were to play the whole year and he was still doing this in December and took him deep into the playoffs, you know, you could say two things. You could say, one, they they, they picked another quarterback, you know, that they have a, another good one at the helm. And two, yeah, that system really is something special. And, it, you know, the system, no matter who the player is, Belichick always just maximizes their 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 strengths and hides their weaknesses as best he can. And I did, definitely did that with Brissett the other night, no doubt about it. See, one of the things that when I listen to national pundits speak on the Patriots, I've heard Colin Cowherd say he really believes that at the end of this year that Belichick is going to be in that position where he has to decide for next year, do I take Jimmy G or a 40-year-old Tom Brady? Do you, as a Patriots fan, feel like that's something you're going to look at in the offseason? Like there's going to be a choice now? Yeah, um, because if Brady was 32, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But Brady's not 32. Brady's going to be 40. And, you know, Belichick drafted Garoppolo the highest he's ever drafted a quarterback. And he's played well. So the decision that Belichick, and it is Belichick's decision. You know, it's it's no one else's decision. It, it, the wild card for me, it may in fact, might be the ownership. You may, you, you know, where, where the crafts are so tight with Brady. But at the end of the day... They want to win, and it's ultimately Belichick's call whether or not he thinks Tom's got another two, maybe three years of elite play versus eight to ten years of play with Jimmy. And he's got to weigh that, but he's got to be—he's he, got to be a fortune teller. He really does. He's got to—he's he, and he's never been afraid to make a move. You say that about the man. A lot of people hate him. A lot of people don't like the way he deals with the media, and obviously because he wins, but. He's never afraid to make the decision, and this is the biggest decision probably of his career that he'll be making. He's the shrewdest head coach I've ever met. He's probably the best decision maker. <clears throat> he's one of the best motivators because he's very much – my favorite college football team is Alabama. Their coach, Nick Saban, is a very good friend of Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. They talk all the time. It's public knowledge that they do, you know, they consult with each other in regards to different things. One of the, I think that's the reason now that I'm able to enjoy this run of success that Alabama's had. It's kind of like what New England's been able to do. They almost mirror each other. You have a team, and regardless of what that team's strengths or weaknesses are, whether it's a freshman quarterback, brand new running back, you know, defensive players that you have to swap in that are new to the system. They find the right guys. They find the right guys. They put them in the right position, and they just let them know that they won't accept anything except for success. If you bring something less to the table, they don't want you here. And when guys are on the downside of their career, he has he has made no bones about the fact that he will get rid of you if he thinks he can get a leg up. You know, if he thinks, you know, if you're Ty Law, if you're, uh, what, Seymour, Richard Seymour. Lawyer Malloy. Lawyer Malloy. If you're any of the, Drew Bledsoe, if you're a guy that he thinks he can leverage for assets because he already knows what he has in the pipeline, you're gone. Yeah. I so, mean, it, so, that's Chris, a, so Chris's question is a, it's a valid one. 
You know? Yeah. Now, I, I always pictured Tom Brady retiring in a Patriots uniform. Do you honestly see a universe in which he doesn't finish the season there? Uh, you mean finish, I mean, finish this season career, here? Finish his career. Oh, finish yeah. his career here? Um, you know, every time that question is posed to me, Joe Montana in a Kansas City Chiefs uniform pops into my head. And never thought you'd see Joe Montana in another uniform. You know, you'd never thought you'd see Joe Namath in a Rams uniform. You never thought you'd see all these other guys that get that traded to go to other teams or just all get released. So I'd say anything's possible. I really would. I mean, in my heart of hearts, of course I hope he retires a Patriot. I don't want him playing for anybody else for a year or two. Um, but Belichick is cold, hard, calculated. And a lot of people around here say Tom, it's different with Tom. It's different. You want to believe that. But then if you, once you take your Patriots fanboy goggles off, Belichick, to him, the bottom line is winning. It's a business. And he's going to make the move that's best for the team. He's done it with Seymour, like you said. He's done it with Vrabel. He's done it with uh, Asante Samuel. He let him go when they had nothing at the quarterback position. He let him go because he didn't want to pay him. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, he'll make the move. And so I can't see that scenario when Brady, where Brady doesn't finish his career yet. Yes. Now, see, guys, that's what I love about Christian. Christian's able to be unbiased as you know, he obviously wears his Patriots fandom on his sleeve, but he's he's willing to be unbiased. Now, now, Chris, as you were saying earlier, Christian's, I mean, his qualifications. I mean, the guy's a guest host over at the PFW In Progress podcast. Yep, and frequent caller. And a frequent caller on the AFC East Pros podcast. So the guy knows yes. what he's talking about, which is why we feel comfortable rolling with him into our next segment, which is our game preview, Buffalo versus New England away in Foxborough. Round one. Round uh-huh. one. Here we go. Let's do it. Now, just to run it down, this is Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, 1 p.m. The weather, it's going to be about 67 degrees, cloudy, 40% chance of rain, and a 10-mile-an-hour wind. So nothing too – the weather shouldn't be too bad, but it's not going to be great. Mm -hmm. The official for the game, Pete Morelli. I don't have any bias against the guy at this point. Just Ed (laughs) Hockley. At least not yet. He hasn't given any reason to. So – the next big part of the game, you're looking at it pregame, is injuries. Now, for New England, on the questionable list, because nobody has been ruled out yet, on the questionable list, Jacoby Brissett, quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, quarterback, Dante Hightower, linebacker, and Jonathan Cooper, offensive guard. Now, out of those injuries... Do you honestly believe, I mean, obviously both of the quarterbacks were at practice. I heard that Jacoby Brissett was throwing and that Jimmy Garoppolo made comments to the media about it just being a pain management issue. In your heart of hearts, do you think that both of them are healthy enough to play? Um, in my heart of hearts, I'd, I'd say that that um, out of the two, strangely enough, I think that Garoppolo is the healthier of the two. And the reason I say that is because Patriots have, have started something new this year on their website where they have a live looking at the first 15 minutes of practice on their website. Ooh. And um, today, Jimmy G was slinging it. Okay. He was, he, I saw him throw two to three passes, good 20 to 25 yards down the field. He was throwing the ball. 
But the one thing I noticed, and I brought this up to the guys on the PFW in Progress show today, when he uh, was handed the ball back to him, he caught it with his only his left hand. He caught it one-handed with his left hand. He wouldn't catch it with his right hand. I thought that was kind of odd. And when he did throw the ball, he kind of just let his right arm just just hang there for a little bit. So that that was kind of a little, hmm, I, I don't know if he could play like that, but he was throwing the ball. And, you know, I think if they shoot him up for Sunday, he'll be ready to go. Um, Brissett, he couldn't even tie his shoes today. Wow. So there was, it took him like a, a little bit to tie. One of his cleats came with that. It took him a little bit of time to tie his shoe. I don't know why. I mean, I, you know, you figured they would have assistance help him, but maybe just no one saw him. But so I think the thumb, while it didn't require surgery, I don't think it's. I don't think he's in any position to start the game. I think it's going to be Jimmy G. Wow! See now, Bills fans, you're out there listening to us getting insider information because I didn't know that. I never. I, I've scoured the internet all day and I couldn't find any news about stuff like that. Now, what about what about if you think Garoppolo's starting? Is Brissett well enough to back up, or do you think that goes to Edelman? I think he's well enough to be in uniform and back up. I mean, if he has to come in and take take a snap on the center and, and run, you know, and help run the offense for a little bit, but I wouldn't put a whole game plan on the kid's shoulders right now. I, I don't. I mean, he couldn't tie his shoe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. no, no. So at least Jimmy threw the ball, even though he didn't look great, you know, after it. But at least Jimmy G could throw the ball, and he was out there on the field. So, I mean, they were both out there on the field. But you know, right thumb. I mean, apparently he did it in the second quarter of last week's game and play the rest of the game. But I mean, obviously the game was over. I mean, it was 10 to nothing at halftime, but it felt like the game was over at that point. Yeah. The, the other injury that I find interesting is down to Hightower. I have to ask it partially because I'm a Homer. I love Alabama and he was one of my favorite players in college football. And when you guys drafted him, you forced me to hate him. For the rest of his career. So thank you for that. You're but, welcome. <laughs> but See, I had that too. He's a very, very productive player for your defense. He plays that outside linebacker who can set the edge, but can also get some pass rush going, who can press the pocket. He hasn't played yet this year. Do you foresee him being well enough to get out there and play this week? Um, yeah, I do. He did play the first game. He just he he got hurt about uh, I think it was midway through the second quarter. He I was going to say it had to be early because when yeah. I looked at the stats and like when I looked at it, he only like I didn't see I I don't scour stats I guess as much as I like to on the Patriots because most of the time I don't like to see him. Sure, but I'll watch the tape and I'll go back to the game pass and I'll pull up the game and I'll watch it and I just didn't see his number out there. So you know, like you said, it was probably early in the game, but. What? Yeah, he finished, I think, with one or two tackles that game. The linebackers did nothing in that game, um, and him especially. I don't know if that was attributed to part of the game plan of part of him being injured, but he did. Um, he practiced last week, obviously, and he didn't play, but the word coming out of the locker room this week, and, and Tom Curran at Comcast Sportsnet actually had a report today where he went up and asked him and said, you know, how's the knee? You know, how are you feeling? And he goes, much, much better this week than last week. Now, whether or not he plays and can be effective, like you said, on the edge and, and stopping the run, uh, we definitely need him against you guys to uh, for the run because Damn McCoy right. is going to be a handful, as he always is. And so that brings us to the Buffalo side of things with the injuries. Now, we also have nobody – well, we've got some guys who are ruled out. Colt Anderson ruled out already. Yeah. Um, Marcel Darius, obviously. He's serving mm-hmm. the last part of his suspension. That's right. Um 
Everyone else, we've got a lot of questionable flying around. Sammy Watkins, listed as questionable. Greg Salas, listed as questionable. Now, those are two of our bigger receiving threats, I would say. Ron Darby, second cornerback, he's also listed as questionable. Last week, we got away without having him on the field. But I would say that, you know, considering that his injury is a hamstring, I'd almost want them to not rush him back. You know, I wouldn't play him like kind of like Gronk. I wouldn't rush the guy back unless you think he can go full tilt. You know, Gronk made some comments to Pro Football Talk during their uh, during an interview about how he wants to go out there and go crazy, but he knows in his head that he can't do that because hamstrings are a very touchy injury. You know, so he's yeah. taking it easy. I think the team should take the same approach with Ron Darby. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, it's it's it, you know, part of the biggest one of the one of the most uh, complex things now in, in, in football is really managing your roster for a full season, mm-hmm. and especially with with guys like Darby and, and and so valuable to the defense, and then a guy like Gronk so valuable to the offense. I mean, Gronk, I mean, he hurt that hamstring on August fifteenth. Okay, so you're talking like a month and a half. And last week was the first action he saw since mm-hmm. live game action that he saw since last year's AFC Championship game. Okay. It's it's because they, they he knows because in his heart of hearts Gronk knows that yeah he wants to be out there playing, but he knows his team will be playing in January. Yeah, and he wants to be there when it matters. Yep, no, I agree. And I think that if the Bills have any playoff aspirations, you don't rush Ron Darby back. You don't, because you also have to believe that you're going to be playing come late in the season for games that matter, and that you're going to want him 100% when those come around. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, when you look at the Patriots, their wide receiving core, I mean, Edelman, Amendola, the kid Mitchell, the rookie Mitchell has looked, you know, he's shown flashes, but he hasn't been great. And, and you know, Chris Hogan. I mean, it, it, this isn't, you know, you're not going up against, um, you know, Antonio Bryant and Marcus <laughs> Wheaton. You know, I mean, I, I yeah. can be honest with you. You're, you know, you're not. You know, when these guys make their hay, you know, in between, in between the numbers. So, um, you know, a guy like Bennett, you know, obviously there's a guy that was signed to really sort of take the place of Gronk. And you know, I think that'd be a guy that you would, you would want to focus on. So then – that brings me to the, one of the more interesting situations of the week when it comes to the Bills roster and injury news. Cordy Glenn, questionable with the same ankle injury that he got during the Ravens game during week one. That's not new to anybody here. Mm-hmm. Cyrus Quanjo is now questionable because apparently late in the Arizona game, he rolled his ankle. And they don't know if he's going to be 100% to play against the Patriots. So they went out and signed. An offensive tackle named Michael Ola. Ola has played for Aaron Cromer in the past, our offensive line coach. Okay. He played for Chicago when he was part of the Bears. He also played for the Lions. Didn't he come off the Giants practice squad? And he was on the Giants practice squad. But he started just, it seems like he started just few enough games to still be practice squad eligible. But he's a big guy. He's a big physical tackle who may not have the fastest, everything I read about the scouting report of Michael Lola, he may not have, is that even his first name? I just know his last name. You know, yeah, not, it's Michael. Michael Lola. Mm-hmm. Right. So everything I read about him, he doesn't have the fastest feet, which is why he struggled to really hold the tackle position in the NFL. But he's a massive human being. 
which makes it hard for edge rushers to get around him just point blank and period because his size and his reach are just so big. Didn't the Patriots do us a favor by trading away Chandler Jones? Well, I'll tell you, Chandler Jones got manhandled by Cyrus Quanja last week. Simonelli, you got your team did yourselves a solid by getting rid of that guy. He's not. And I'll tell you, I can see exactly why they did it. They looked at what free agent defensive ends like Vernon Nye, Olivier Vernon from Miami got. And they said, there's no way we're paying Chandler Jones that money. Let's leverage him now because that's who they are. That's who the Patriots are. They're opportunistic. They said, let's leverage him now while he's still worth something. We can get, what'd they get? They got John Cooper. pick and John Cooper. Yeah. That was a steal for you guys. Yeah, it was. And that's just Bill being, I mean, that's Bill being Bill. You know, it, it, he, he, I think he was also pretty confident that Sheard, the combination of Sheard, Flowers, and the acquisition of Long, Chris Long. Would, be, would be enough. And it has been so far. I'll tell you, the, the, the biggest kick in the teeth for me as a Bills fan is watching the Patriots year after year get underpriced veterans because they know they can come to you guys and win. Yeah. <laughs> they know they can come to you guys. So I always look at sure. when, when the Patriots sign somebody like a Chris Long, you're like, oh, his career's over. And you just think that. You're like, why is he going to New England? His career is done. He's not going to get any use. And then Belichick makes them make, Superman. Makes him Superman for a year. It's like he goes there and they, they, I don't know, they have some kind of a secret ceremony and all of a sudden he comes out and he's Superman. Yeah, I, you know, and I noticed it in training camp. I went out to one of the practices, and I, I didn't know Long's number yet. And I saw him flying off the edge around, uh, I think it was Cannon. And that's no great feat because Cannon isn't exactly a great tackle. But <laughs> I go, I go, and I was with my friend, and I go, who the hell's 95? And he goes, I think that. He goes, hold, and they give you a list. And he goes, oh, that's Long. I go, no way. And this yeah, was in right? this was in August, and I go. He wow, looked like he a whole quick. different player, and this season he's yeah. looked great for you guys. Yeah, he he's probably been their best. Uh, he's probably been their best um, pass rusher up until last game with Sheard. And so that brings us to this week's offensive scouting report of the New England Patriots. So, first off, first and foremost, on any Bills fan's mind, the quarterback identity crisis currently going on in Foxborough. Knowing what we know about Bill Belichick, it's not hard to imagine a world in which he keeps us guessing playing this shell game of quarterbacks until kickoff on Sunday as far as who his starting quarterback is going to be. Now, by all accounts, according to you, according to everything I've heard, both Brissett and Jimmy Garoppolo have practiced, but they're not a hundred, neither one of them is 100%. And they haven't signed any other quarterbacks, so it's all going to come down to kickoff, and I only see three choices. First off, Jimmy Garoppolo, young but poised second-year quarterback, looked comfortable throwing the ball downfield when given a clean pocket. He's got some mobility, and he can scramble if he has to, but with this injury, I almost feel like he'd be a little bit afraid of pressure, almost even you know simulated pressure, not real pressure. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it, as I mentioned that, you know, today that, that Jimmy was, was really throwing, uh, slinging it at practice and threw a couple of pretty good passes, but, you know, he was catching the ball with his left hand and, and you know, it was kind of like, you know, just looked really ginger out there. Brissett, um, I didn't see him throw the ball and, you know, he had trouble tying his shoe because of his thumb. So, you know, I think that if, if Jimmy G does go, which I think he will, 
they'll do what they do. They'll get the ball out quick. You know, they'll dump it off to the tight ends in the backs. So they're not going to take any, you know, five, seven-step drops back there. They'll get the ball mm-hmm. out quick and, 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 and just, you know, run their offense. So then Jacoby Brissett, rookie third-rounder, he's got some arm talent, but he's also got some accuracy issues. He's much more dangerous with his legs in the open field than Jimmy Garoppolo is at this point. Now, I've got an interesting note. From what I watched of the game from Jacoby Brissett, would, you know, if he's to start on Sunday, in the game against Houston, he didn't attempt a single pass to the middle of the field. And he only threw five passes to the right side of the field altogether. That's 26% of all of the passes he threw went to the right side, and everything else was to the left side. Now, that might have been part of the game plan so that he wasn't exposing his blind side as often looking that way, but I feel like that's something any good defensive coordinator can key on. Yeah, I agree with that, and I was surprised that that Cornell didn't make an adjustment to that. See, you know, the thing I respect about Rex is that Rex will come after you. And I'm telling you right now, if Brissett's in the game, he will come after him. And there's no doubt in my mind, and Rex will give him fits. Rex has given Brady fits, you know. Mm -hmm. And when you play Rex, you know, the the thing about Rex is that when you play him, it's not the same game plan. He's not a do-what-I-do type coach. One one time he play him, he may blitz the hell out of you. The next time he may play, he may just, you know, rush four and and drop seven. So, you know, having Brissett in there would definitely – would make me as a Pats fan make me definitely make me very nervous because Brissett's limited right now. He really is limited in the throws that he can make. And then the third option is Julian Edelman, a college quarterback turned wide receiver. Now his arm talent may be decent, but his ability to properly read a defense doesn't scare me, especially not a defense as complicated as what Dennis Thurman and Rex Ryan could throw at it. I think playing with him at the helm of an offense would be similar to watching what the Dolphins Wildcat offense was in 2011. Yeah, wrong? pretty much. Um, yeah, I wouldn't expect, you know, you have Edelman out there taking meaningful snaps and we get a real problem. Edelman hasn't played uh, since um, since college, since he was at Kent State, hasn't played quarterback. And I know he threw the pass against the Ravens in the, um, you know, in the uh, divisional game in 2014, which was a nice, which is certainly a nice throw. But, you know, if you have him on the center taking meaningful snaps, um, you know, no way. That's that's a disaster. That's got disaster written all over it. So my assumption is, as we've been talking about, that if Garoppolo's ready, he's going to get the nod. But I'll be honest, even if Garoppolo's in there, I see Ryan throwing the house at that kid. Just to, you know, the house, the toilet, the kitchen sink. He's going to bring everything. He's going to bring everything he has and whoever you have under center because at the end of the day, it's not Tom Brady. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think he'll definitely come after uh, Jimmy if he's in there. And, and, you know, at least the thing that Jimmy, Jimmy has shown so far, you know, against, uh, you know, Arizona and, and, and Miami is, is really, he had the ability to get the ball out quick and to make quick reads. And then, you know, there was a play against the dolphins where he had a great uh, first half and he looked down the field, there was a touchdown to Martellus Bennett where he looked left real quick, froze the safety just enough, and then looked immediately back to the middle of the field and hit, really hit Bennett in stride. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to revisit this idea back in the keys to the game, but okay. I'm going to move on to another topic. Tight end usage for the Patriots is still heavy. With Gronkowski and the you know, the Patriots have one of the NFL's biggest and best red zone targets. You know, Gronkowski is a household name. 
just what five years into his career, six years into his career. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't surprising to see that Martellus Bennett just, I mean, when they got in the red zone, he was their stud. He took 21 of 22 possible snaps in the red zone for you guys because Gronk couldn't play. And the only one that he missed was the one that Gronk went out and actually tried to catch a pass. But through three games, Bennett has one touchdown. And it's, it comes against the Finns who have terrible interior linebackers. Yeah, you know, Bennett um, came out in the first game against Arizona. You know, we all thought he was going to have a big game in Gronk's absence. What did he do? He blocked the whole game. Mm-hmm. Caught like three passes. Comes back against the Dolphins. Has a big game against the Dolphins. You know, made a couple of nice plays at over 100 yards receiving, a touchdown. Uh, he had like a screen, couple of screen plays where he came out, looked great. What does he do in the Texans game? Basically, again, comes back to essentially being a blocker, caught a couple of passes. But yeah. Um, you know, just a more versatile uh, uh, player behind Gronk. Um, not Aaron Hernandez. A lot of people want to compete, compare him to Aaron Hernandez. He's not. He can he can play a lot of different spots, um, but he's a way better blocker than Hernandez ever was. So he can be that inline guy, Clay Harbor, uh, more of a special teams type guy, but he can certainly block in there as well. And AJ Derby is is uh, AJ Derby. Be honest with you, we haven't seen him since the Arizona game since he uh, had a false start. So I think he's in the doghouse a little bit. So I guess then that's the question: is how do you think Bennett's usage might change now that both tight ends are practicing in full? I mean, do in, you think they go to tight end, or does it become a rotation at tight end? Um, it's I think it I think they go to tight end. You know, I. Uh, this team obviously is game is game uh, you know game plan specific. So each week it changes, but their base offense is tight is to, uh, two tight ends. You know whether it was Chandler and Gronk or Hernandez and Gronk or now Bennett and Gronk. So I think they'll both be out there at the same time, and and they'll and they'll try to cause a you know a, a matchup a matchup issue. And I guess the last question I have about tight ends, as far as the Patriots' offense goes. Do you think either one of the quarterbacks, you know, whoever starts for the Patriots this week, do you think do you foresee them having an issue with Gronkowski? I mean, none of them have had the opportunity through training camp through the first three games. None of them have really played with Gronkowski and had a chance to learn his tendencies as a receiver. Um, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that, you know, especially in this offense where it's a lot, always about precision and Brady always, you know, talking about guys being available and so they can be out there to practice. Um, Hey, you know, he throws, uh, you know, either Brissett or, or, uh, or Jimmy G throw a ball that, that, that may be behind him or a little bit in front of him. And next thing you know, it's a pick six. So I can certainly see that happen. Yeah. Especially with this defense that flies around. No. Well, and that's the thing is that given this defense with their safety play and now the cornerbacks really starting to get it, starting to get into a groove, it could be dangerous for a quarterback to try to throw to a tight end they're not familiar with, anticipate incorrectly, you end up turning the ball over. Yeah, I agree with that. You guys on the back end really have some playmakers back there, so I definitely think it could be an issue, sure. And then the, the other big thing that I noticed about the way the Patriots have been going about offense this season. The rushing attack. Where the hell did this come from? Okay, let, let me read this off to you. Week one, 106 rushing yards. Week two, 161 rushing yards. And then week three against the strongest defense on paper that they've faced all season, 185 rushing yards. I mean, 
for a team that's known for its passing, they're averaging over 150 yards on the ground per game. Now, is that just a product of them having big leads, or is this is this the new direction of the offense? It's a product of them having big leads. Those are some of the most misleading numbers that you'll probably see this season. Bulk of those yards have come in the second half. If you look at Blunt's average in the first half versus the second half, mm-hmm. it's less than half. I mean, he's had like at one point in one of the games, I think he had 11 rushes for like 12 yards on one of the games in the first half. So it's clearly a case of teams being worn down in the second half and then and them also having a lead. Now, the most impressive performance was against the Dolphins in the second half. They got the ball back with just under six minutes to go. Miami knew they had a run. They ran, and they ran to essentially a victory um, because they basically chewed up that clock in the fourth quarter to get out of there because they had a 31-3 lead at halftime, and the defense played like absolute crap in the second half and let Miami back into that game. Uh, Tannehill was 21 of 22 in the second half. That just goes to show you how bad they played because I think Tannehill sucks. And they played like absolute crap, and Blunt really carried them to a victory. The game against the Texans – Listen, Houston just didn't show up. They really didn't. It was they might as well have just been playing, you know, seven on seven. It, it was just it was that just they just weren't into it. Plus, you wondered if Watts' back was messed up for that game. It had to be Cannon single blocked him twelve times. There's no way on the face of the planet. <laughs> and you hate that Marcus, Marcus Cannon. Cannon. Oh, I hate him. I, yeah, I hate him. You have no, oh my, what a passion. Twelve times he single blocked uh, 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 JJ uh, Watt, and I said, I turned to my girl. I go, he's got to be hurt. <laughs> because there's no way Cannon Cannon is improved. He's better than he was last year. Dante Scarnecchia is a fantastic offensive line coach. We all know that. But I mean, he's working miracles with that kid. <laughs> I loved it. I just, I just like amped you up for a quick second. Like you uh, just took it to another level. No, there. he's I love there's, it. I, I the thing I like about Christian is he's got. He's like me. He's got his moments where you know he can talk to you rationally about anything. But if you put your finger on that button. Oh, I'll come cannon. unglued. I will just fly off the handle. Zero to hot. Yep. So, so I guess then it's safe to say, though, after looking at the stats, even though you're saying they're misleading, LeGarrette Blunt looks like he's your number one running back. I mean, uh, how, how about this? Here's a statistic for you. You talk about how stats lie. Well, here's one that doesn't. They love him in the red zone. He Out of the 14 snaps that your team has, team has gotten in the red zone this season, he's 11 of them. Well, when he's been on the field, I guess. This is how I should, per- I should set this up. He's been on the field for 14 snaps in the red zone for your team. 11 of them were handoffs to him, and he accounts for all nine of their first downs inside the 20. Well, they love him, but they don't have anybody else. I mean, <laughs> and, and that's the simple fact. Like, James White and Brandon Bolden are not going to get to carries. In the red zone, they're going to give it to him. Um, in years past, you know, when you had uh, Stephen Ridley or Shane Vereen, you may you would you would might see a little bit of a shift there where, where Vereen might come in on some goal line plays, but it was mostly Ridley. Now, forget it; it's all blunt all the time. That's it. And if they lost him, well, it'd be four wide, five wide every week, like it was at the or, tail end of last year, where they had no running game at well, all. Not, now here's, or no, they would go sign Carlos Williams. Well, <laughs> I'm well, just, here's the thing that scares me about Legarrette Blunt. Again, breaking down all of his stats because I'm a freak about this. 
I'm on my lunch break at work. I'm in my office. And if people come in, I, I'm, I'm very short with them because I want them to leave so that I can finish analyzing statistics <laughs> about the Patriots because I'm just a nut job like this. The thing that scares me about his production is that it's coming from all over the offensive line. You see a lot of running backs who have tendencies. You know, the, the biggest thing against Reggie guys like Reggie Bush, guys like C.J. Spiller, they could only make plays outside of the tackle box. Mm-hmm. Then you had some running backs who could only survive between the tackles. They were north-south runners. They couldn't really do a whole lot of moving around. LeGarrette Blunt is getting yardage no matter where he runs. It's on the outside. It's on the inside. It's off either guard. He's effective because, like you said, they batter the team and just wear them down. And then in the fourth quarter, he just runs away with football games. Yeah, and it, you know the one thing where I will give him credit is he has been impressive when he's gotten to the outside. He's had a couple of those plays where he's you know turned it on and he's pulled away from the defense or he's hurdled someone. Um, you know it, they, he has. He's definitely been whether it's to the left or the right or the middle. It, it, he, he's definitely getting yards from all over the field, and I, I really do think it's a product of them just wearing teams down. I really do. Oh. And fundamentally, the offensive line is better this year. They really are. You can see it. Well, um, and that's a big thing. I think your rookie Joe Tooney. I thought he was a stupid pick, and now I watch him play, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, why? Why? He, you know what it is? It's like I said earlier, they can just go They go to New England, and there's some super secret ceremony that they do, and all of a sudden this guy becomes an all-star. Like, well, what the hell? You know, not a lot of people like that pick, and I think it was pro football focus that rated him the best rookie guard so far this year. Um I, he's played great. He really has. He's played awesome. He's he's a little bit on the a Logan Mankins Mauler type side. He's got that bit of a nastiness to him, mm-hmm. um, but he's definitely he's you know I, I'd say he's probably been their best offensive lineman so far. Uh, certainly, which is uh, you know it's a big surprise. I mean, the but they definitely is, liked him. The fact is, even without a quarterback, you guys are still terrifying on offense. So, yep. Bills fans everywhere. For as much as I can break it down for you, we have to be afraid of these guys. That brings us to my defensive scouting report. Now, the Patriots are one of the few teams in the NFL that don't really have a set defensive scheme. You know, they prefer to use these odd tweener players and these kind of hybrid athletes, as well as just a multitude of formations. You know, they pick from anyone. It it could be, it's a grab bag. It varies from week to week, depending on who they think you are. You know what I mean? They don't. Yep. They're, they're not the Seahawks who are going to come out in a three-four and just try to punch you in the mouth. They are just an amalgamation of different formations that they put together to try to come up with a game plan. But they've done so much scouting and they found players that can fit a multitude of roles that they can get away with that. And it's it's hard to know exactly what we're going to see out of a Patriots defense on any given week. It doesn't matter who they're playing. So what I did for this segment was I just threw together some of my thoughts on what we might see based on the talent of the players that they have on that side of the ball. The first thing I noticed just watching the Houston game, zone blitz concepts. We've already heard from from multiple teams that their key to beating Tyrod Taylor was containing him in the pocket. The Jets said it, the Ravens said it. Arizona didn't do that, and Tyrod Taylor got off for 79 yards and just a touchdown and... He basically did enough to keep the defense on their heels. I fully expect the Patriots to learn from everyone else's mistakes and deploy a defense on Sunday that keeps Tyrod Taylor tucked in the pocket 
throwing against the zone. They have a couple specific players that I think are going just going to excel in that game plan. The first one is Jamie Collins. Okay, the guy is a he's a hybrid player. He's like a Swiss Army knife for the Patriots defense. And he's going to be one of the most dangerous players on their side of the field. Collins is listed as an outside linebacker, but he's six foot four and two hundred and fifty pounds, and he plays everywhere. The guy lines up, you know, he lines up between the tackles on a gap blitzes. You know, he 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 rushes the passer, he stops the run. He can, as the the Houston Texans found out, Jamie Collins can drop into a shallow zone and intercept passes. The fact is, is I expect them to take Jamie Collins, and he's a chess piece for them. They're going to move him all around the field deployed near the line of scrimmage, that way they can kind of combo blitzing into dropping into coverage and try to keep the quarterback off balance. Yeah, you know, Jamie Collins is is the most versatile player on the team. And, you know, you talked about the team being multiple. They really do switch up from week to week what, you know, what they're going to do, whether or not they're going to have, you know, a bunch of big guys in there for the run or whether or not they're going to take Shane McClellan and put him at end or put him at linebacker or take Donta Hightower and, you know, put him at end and keep him at linebacker. So, you know, I am curious to see what they're going to do against Tyrod this week because, yeah, that was the plan last year. Keep him in the pocket. Make him throw between the numbers. When he throws between the numbers, they get interceptions. When he throws to the outside, it's more successful. Not having Sammy Watkins, I think, is probably going to hurt you guys in that aspect. Um, so I think that that'll be the plan is to really keep him in there. I mean, I think they sacked him in the first game like six or seven, five or six times in the first game last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that'll be the plan, you know, again this time. And it's definitely got to bottle uh, bottle up McCoy. You know, you can't let him get going. Well, and that's the problem is that, I mean, and that's the problem for the Bills offense is that Jamie Collins can be that guy. He can do both. Yeah. He can play the run. I mean, he what is he, second on the team in tackles? I believe he, so, yeah. Yeah. He's second on the team in tackles. He He's everywhere. The guy can do everything. He's a jack of all trades. And so they're going to use him to try to keep Tyrod in that pocket, but also enforce the run game. And then if you're talking about the secondary in defense, you're looking for a playmaker. Now, I know everyone loves Malcolm Butler. He's clearly the number one cornerback in the Patriots defense. But Logan Ryan is playing very well. I mean, Butler doesn't get tested as often as Logan Ryan does. But Ryan, even with all the balls coming his way, has played solid for you guys so far. He, he has. He's actually been one of, you know, he had a pretty good year last year. And uh, this year is really just built on it. Um, I can tell you this. If you throw the ball to him, he's going to catch it. He's not the type of kid that's going to make spectacular, get, uh, you know, uh, interceptions. But he's near, he's near, he's, if he's near a guy and the ball's anywhere near him, he's going to grab it. And he did, did a pretty good job in DeAndre Hopkins last week. Um, you know, obviously, they played that too deep, you know, shell and didn't let anything behind him. But yeah, he's been, you know, he's been a very good compliment to Butler. You know, the PFW guys—they really don't like him. They just think that he's a, an average, an average guy. Um, but even they have admitted this year so far, he's been playing, you know, a lot better than he has been. So we're going to move ahead here, though. So, yeah, Logan Ryan, you guys have a lot of good pieces on defense. But now here's what I see when I watch your tape. And these are reasons to give Bills fans out there who are still listening some confidence. Lack of true pressure. I watch the tape and I see a defense that just shut another team out completely and held another team to only three points in the first half. But at the same time, they're only 17th in sacks. A lot of it is because what they're doing is they send simulated pressure. 
They send blitzes, but then roll their defensive coverages the opposite way. So the cor- the quarterback almost he feels the pressure. He rolls away. And then as he's trying to throw, he sees zone defenders in his face and he makes bad decisions or he just throws the ball in the dirt, he throws it away, he makes inaccurate passes. That's what they're doing on defense. Now, what I think is that we have an offensive <laughs> we have an offense that's predicated on stopping that type of defense. You try to roll your coverage and you open up a lane, Tyrod Taylor can take off on you guys. Yeah. That so you guys have to focus on that containment. Yeah, and I think that that's why Bill won't play that defense against you guys. And I think that so far what you've seen in the games, you know, look at the quarterbacks that he's played. Carson Palmer, not a runner. Ryan Tannehill, not a runner. Um, you know, uh, Brock Osweiler, not a runner. Those are all pocket QBs. Against a runner, it's going to be a little bit different. You know, there was a defense a bunch of years ago that he played against Michael Vick. And when they beat him, the talk after the game was the whole focus the week in practice was not turning you back to the line to keep everything in front of you, to play zone, to keep guys, you know, not turning around, just backpedaling. But everybody, you know, in the backfield, everybody just kept their eyes on the quarterback. And I think that's probably what they'll do this week. Um, and I think Tyrod is is, is an absolute weapon getting out of the pocket. So they got to keep him in the pocket, and they got to force him to make throws. And that brings – well, and you're right. They do have to. But so when, he, when it comes to throws, that's going to bring me to my first weaknesses of the Pats' defense. Mm-hmm. All the tape I watched on you guys. The Cardinals passed for 271 on the Patriots in the season opener. Out of that 271, 206 yards of it came on passes of less than 20 yards. Mm-hmm. They chewed you guys up on yep. short passes and run after the catch. The same way Miami passed for 387 yards, and 277 of it passes a fewer than 20 yards. Mm-hmm. So it almost makes me think that Houston played. I watched what he was trying to do, and they were trying to work the downfield ball. They were trying to get Hopkins deep. They were trying to get Fuller on 15, 20-yard patterns. Houston completely ignored the blueprint for how the other two teams moved the ball against you, which is short passes, quick passes. Get it out. Let your guy get some yardage. I feel like you know, if you guys are making a commitment to keeping Tyrod Taylor in the pocket, that short pass is going to be there. It will be. Yep, but the key is going to be if if Tyrod is patient enough to take those short passes and ultimately not force it because you're right. Look at the first two games, close games. Next game, blowout. Why? Because they weren't patient. Osweiler wasn't patient. Palmer was patient. He did start throwing to Larry Fitzgerald late in that game and did start getting those short, short, you know, passes. And he, and he was able to, you know, keep the game close. And Tannehill did the same thing with Landry and Parker in the second half. Through the short passes, was patient, and ultimately they ended up, you know, getting close and almost winning the game. So the key is, is Tyrod, you guys would know better than this, is he patient enough to do that? Well, we're going to find out. Yeah. And then the other weakness I saw, counters and trap plays up the middle. David Johnson, 10 of 73 yards with one touchdown when he ran behind center. Yeah. 
Now Miami only ran outside because of their injuries at center. You know, they're on their second string starting center when you guys played them. Yep. He, he was held. They were held under 70 yards rushing because they yep. tried to get outside the box on you guys. Buffalo is one of the most prolific rushing teams that the Pats will face this entire season. I feel like there's hay to be made there if we can run up the gut of that defense. There is if Hightower doesn't play. After Jamie Collins, there is a major drop-off at the linebacker position with Jonathan Freeney and Shane McClellan. Not good. They're just not good players. Freeney and, and, and McClellan are not even the same stratosphere as Collins and Hightower. If Collins is out there alone, he's going to have his work cut out for him in this game. If Hightower is out there, obviously dependent on health, I like our chances better. But I agree. If, if, it's, just, if it's just Collins, um, you, know, you, got, you, you definitely have the opportunity there to make some yards. And so that brings me to our keys to victory. For the Buffalo Bills. The first one is we were just talking about. I think they need to establish the trap, sweep, and draw running game. This week it's going to be important that the Bills establish their rushing attack in order to sustain, not only sustain drives and eat clock, keep the ball out of the Patriots' hands on offense, but they have to keep the defense from keying on Tyrod Taylor with that zone blitz that they like to deploy. Mm-hmm. Now the Patriots are physical at the point of attack on defense, but I think a little bit of misdirection is exactly what it would take to beat that. I mean, if you want to rush us, you want to come downhill at a running play, all we need is, I mean, the perfect running back to run that scheme would be LaShawn McCoy. You know, the, he scored a what? Well, what was it? A 16, 17, 18-yard touchdown against the Cardinals on a trap play where they let all of the D tackles come downhill. And then LaShawn McCoy just cut across their backs. And because it was a cutback, because it was a cutback, the linebackers were already going one direction and couldn't match his speed coming out of the backfield, and he just shot away from everybody. Yeah, I know. Over the years, the cutback play has given the Patriots issues. So, like you said, you're going to get them going one way, and you got to be disciplined to not follow, you know, everything that way, and then cut it back to the right to the open field. So, I think you could definitely, you know, do that if you get those ends. I mean. Nikovich isn't playing. Nikovich is usually pretty good on the edge, and you know you got a guy like Long that maybe that maybe isn't used to doing that um, on the edge certainly, and you know Sheard, and then even Flowers who you know hasn't played that much but has played okay. I think he might have the opportunity to take advantage of that, uh, you know, provided that 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 he can fool the defense. Then we got to also make the the next key: making the most of our deep passing opportunities. Now, last week, the deep passing game didn't have to bail us out because the run game was dominating. But if we're going to take down the Pats, Tyrod is going to have to hit some throws up the seams and deep over the top in order to loosen up you know, the safeties and kind of give the running game some room to operate. That's going to be hard to do if we don't have Sammy Watkins. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. No yeah. Sammy Watkins, no Greg Salas. With, we saw what happens last week when Marquise Goodwin's your number one receiver. He doesn't get open. He needs to be single coverage so we can burn somebody. If they double cover him, he's gone. He disappears. The fact is is that the injuries are going to play a lot into this, but I firmly believe that Tyrod has to look downfield in order to get those safeties out of the box. And then the last one is to generate pressure from the defensive line. Now this speaks to your earlier point that Garoppolo was very good against the blitz. 
So good. In fact, I looked up the numbers. He was solid in his two starts. Now, the Dolphins were doing everything they could to slow him down. They started throwing one, maybe even two extra blitzers at him in order to try to break his timing in that first half. You want to know what the result was? He posted a 105.8 quarterback rating against the Blitz. Wow. That's why they just shredded the defense of Miami in the first half. Because Miami was blitzing nonstop and just getting smoked because Garoppolo could get the ball out quickly. My hope is that, you know, if if we're going to beat them, if Garoppolo is the quarterback, he's going to throw that ball and he's going to throw it quickly. So you can't suck everyone into a vacuum at the offensive line and get beat over your backside. I expect them, if I was the defensive coordinator, what I would what I would do, I would try to play the same zone scheme that you guys play against other teams. I would do that back to you. I would simulate pressure, but roll a zone out there to slow the quarterback down because you're talking about a guy who, yes, he's playing well, but he hasn't seen a lot of exotic defensive looks. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, and, and this is cliche, but get out to a fast start. The number one team in the league, it's scoring, uh, outscoring their opponents this year, New England Patriots, 34 to nothing in the first quarter. They've gotten out to fast starts. So it's imperative on the road that the Bills get out to a fast start. So I think it's going to be a little difficult this week without having Marcel Dittorius to push that pocket right into Garoppolo's face or Brissett or Edelman or Brady or Steve Grogan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the fact is, is that the bills have to see these numbers and realize you can't just solve all your problems by blitzing because Garoppolo can, can beat a blitz. Mm-hmm. This is going to yeah. have to be a game. That's one in the trenches. Our defensive line is going to have to find out Jerry Hughes is going to have to be the man. We're going to have to find a way on defense to beat your offensive line with four or five guys. And if we can't do that, it's going to expose the rest of our defense to trouble. Yeah, and, and you know, like I said, I, I think Rex is, is a good enough coach to give, you know, a second-year guy a rookie quarterback fits. And I just think that he's going to come up with a decent game plan. You know, when, when this started out, you know, I talked to you guys earlier. I said I think I thought they would go 2-2 two and two without Brady, and I thought one of the losses would be to the Bills, even though the Pats are at home. I just think that Rex comes up with a good game plan. Now, you know, hey, before last week, you know, like everybody else, I was like, what the hell are they doing up there? You guys fired the offensive coordinator. You're 0-2. What's going on? You know, it looked like a total circus. Last week, you come out, you, you take you take it to the Cardinals, you know, and you get a huge win. Um, coming into this game, 0-3 versus 1-2, and it's a huge difference in a much big uh, mentality, uh, you know. But I will say with Rex, you know, I have seen this with the Jets. He gets a little bit carried away with his wins and celebrates them a little bit too long. So I think it being the Patriots, I don't think he's doing that this week. But, you know, just that's something to keep in mind. No, because you're not wrong. You're talking to Bills fans. You know we didn't have back-to-back wins last season? I do. You guys actually told me that. (laughs) Okay, so we we didn't have back-to-back wins last season. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to be a playoff football team – at some point, you got to win two or three in a row, right? Yes. Yeah, you got to exactly. And so then the last key to the football game, the most important f- key to the football game, 
That's a that's just a pray. <laughs> it's just a, every Bills fan out there hits their knees at least once on Sunday and just has a quick, just I don't know, just a quick one over for the Buffalo Bills. Am I so <laughs> wrong in endorsing that? Come on now. So then we get to predictions. Now Christian's obviously from Boston, right, Christian? Yes, sir. Okay, so this is what Christian's fellow New Englander and also fellow Pats fan and also a professional comedian Bill Burr had to say about what this week's game means on his very not-safe-for-work podcast Monday morning. But uh, I think it's going to be a really tough game, Um, and I really hope that we win because uh, if we lose, I know that Rex Ryan is going to do some classless fucking, uh, you know... One of his corny ass John Wayne fucking lines. Nothing worse than a fat guy with swagger. Um, <laughs> I'm such a dick sometimes. All right, God bless him. So, considering <laughs> considering that that's what Bill Burr thinks, what do you think, Christian? What's your prediction for the game? Well, I think Bill Burr is pretty funny. Love Bill Burr. Um, Diehard Pat's Homer. Uh, I think I ultimately I think that the Bills are going to keep this close, and I think they're going to come out on top. I'm looking at probably like a, a, a 21-17 type of game. I, I really do. I really see that. I just I, I think that for three weeks the Patriots have really done a pretty good job of of, of you know, playing good ball, but I think they're going to come up against a defense, the best defense out of the four. You know, I don't care what anybody says about Houston; those guys just didn't come to play. They may have more talent than you guys, or just as much talent as the Bills. But I think the Bills got this one this week. I really do. I'm going with. 30 to 14, New England. Oh, you're wow. always rooting against us. Jeez. I'm you know being what? a realist. It's- Damn it, Chris. And last week you thought you were being a realist. You picked Arizona, and then you tried <laughs> to lump me into that shit earlier. I'll tell you what. I did. I will never root against the Bills. I said that we would win by a field goal. We so won by a lot more than that. But so we're f- going 14 and 2? But the fact is, <laughs> but the fact is, is that... I thought we. I think we can win every week because I see what we do well and I see what we do what we don't do well, and I just hope that the guys who who are getting paid millions of dollars to know more than me can make the same decisions. At the end of the day, my prediction is that this comes down to a field goal. Twenty four twenty one Buffalo Bills victory. They get their first one against a full strength Pats team in Foxborough. Bang! Book it. I like it. I, I, you know, I tend to agree with you. I do. You know, it's it's it's. I, I you know the one wild card is special teams played a huge role last week. Not sure what type of role they're going to play this week. So that's that's something to keep in mind as you watch Sunday's game. Absolutely, See, two of your touchdowns came off fumbles inside of the twenty. That's right, because Billy Boy decided instead of blasting them through the end zone, kick them in, in basically inside the five yard line because he's the smartest coach in the NFL. That's exactly why I'm picking New England to win. I know it's <laughs> All right, I know it's Belichick and Brady. If they have there's one of those two Chris, involved in the game, New England's gonna win. Chris, I'll tell you this, I'll see you in hell. The Buffalo Bills <laughs> win this football game. Christian, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. I appreciate it. Guys, thank you for having me. I love coming on. This is great. Really enjoy it. <laughs> Anytime, brother. We'll see you around. And as we're talking about New England. That brings us to this week's, this is a new segment, folks, we're doing called Bill's Backers Profile of the Week. And this week's Lucky Bill's Backers chapter is the Bill's Backers of Boston. 
Now, each week, we'd like to highlight a Bills backers group in the away city that we're playing against. In case any of our you know, listeners and out-of-town fans want to know where they can catch the game. Or if any of our uh, listeners know people in that city, relatives, friends, family. You know, oh, hey, this is where the Boston Bills backers bar is. Or in this case, maybe they just want to not be the only person crying at the bar <laughs> at the end of a football game. But in this week's case, it is the Bills backers of Boston. Now, folks, the club was originally founded by Jeff Crump and George Passel in 1991. And then they were joined by Chris Salemi, his wife Kristen, as well as Tim Sweeney in managing the group's activities. In true City of Good Neighbors fashion, these guys are more than they're they're more than just a group that likes to get together and party on Sundays. The Bills backers of Boston do a lot of charitable fundraising in the New England area. Over the last few years, they've raised over eleven thousand dollars for the Make Make a Wish Foundation of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And they were even recently able to grant the wish of a little girl battling cellular cancer to go to Disneyland and meet her favorite Disney princess, Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Their next big charity event is coming up on December 4th. They currently meet up at a bar called The Harp, which is located right across the street from TD Garden, 85 Causeway Street in downtown Boston, every single Sunday. The Harp boasts Labatt Blue on tap, Bill's Decor, and they've even got a special Bills Backers menu that features, features you know, tastes of home for, for Bills fans. Fried bologna. They have a Bills burger on Weck. And they even make Ro- you know, Rochester delicacy garbage plates. I mean, how awesome is that, Chris? Oh, I love it. And the uh, Bills Backers of Atlanta that I was involved in, uh, when I started getting involved in it, they actually we actually had so much influx of people that the bar had to get a second fryer from Wings. <laughs> and they make Wings, too. Complete with the shout song after Bill, after the Bills score, this place sounds like an awesome, awesome destination to check out the game for our migrant Bills fans. They've currently got over 950 members who subscribe to the newsletter and attend their events. So if you live in the Boston area, want to be surrounded by fellow Bills fans on game day, and want to support some great causes in the process, you should head down to the Harp this weekend. And also check out their website at bostonbillsbackers.com or join their Facebook group. You'll find them as the Bills Backers of Boston for more information on their upcoming events and any other special stuff they may have planned. I was talking with um, one of their the founders, Kristen Salemi. She was even saying they do, they do an event at the bar where they fly in Mighty Taco and the bar cooks it for them and then they serve it. During the game on Sunday. That's amazing. I, I didn't know Bills backers of Atlanta to do anything like that. I'm telling you guys, if anyone anyone out there in the Massachusetts area who doesn't want to sit there on their couch next to their cousin Jimmy and you know the rest of their Boston neighborhood and have to high-five their neighbor wearing a Patriots jersey when the Bills score, head down to the Harp and check out the Bills backers of Boston. And as always... 506sports.com for the broadcast information. They do a coverage map. If you don't want to go to your local Bills Backers bar and you want to watch the game at home, but you don't know if the game is going to be shown locally in your from your affiliate, 506sports.com has you covered with a coverage map. This game is on predominantly in the Northeast, and there's some parts in the Southeast and the uh, Central area, Michigan, Minnesota, are going to get the game. That's weird. 
Yeah. Michigan and Minnesota. Michigan, I can list some of the states. Some of Illinois, all of Michigan, Minnesota. How about this? Like most of Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma will get the game. Miami will get the game. Let's get to the important part. Who's calling the game? The game will be called by Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts. I apologize. Spiro Ditas is actually doing the 4 o'clock game, Denver at Tampa. Spiro Ditas is one of my favorites. Guys, we got to go. Big big thank you to Christian Simonelli for stopping by and helping us out, you know, kind of walk through the upcoming week's Patriots game. And a, and a big shout-out to the Bills backers of Boston. You know, guys, check them out. You know, if you're in the area, feel free to stop by the Harp and have a beer. And speaking of Bills backers, I'm going to Atlanta this weekend, so I will be watching Sunday's game at the Whitehall Tavern in Buckhead. Home there of you the, go. Home of the Bills backers of Atlanta. All right. Well, it's it's a- been five years since I have graced that bar with my presence. It's a big Bills backers weekend, folks. Hopefully we get a win out of this thing. We got to go. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. And this has been the Rockpile Report.